Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. Especially after this past summer, academic institutions are vocal about the need to diversify both their students and their faculty. But have you thought deeply about the advantages of a diverse faculty? Today's guest, Adan Colon Carmona, makes the case that the faculty with multiple identities have unique experiences that help them connect to their students, create empathy for them, and inspire them to find out what makes them happy. One note before we begin, we recorded these episodes in October, and then life intervened. So any references to recent or upcoming events may not match our current situation. And with that, on to the episode. Today's guest is Adan Colon Carmona. He did his PhD at UC Irvine and postdoctoral work at the Salk Institute and at UC Davis. He's now a professor in the Department of Biology at UMass Boston, where he teaches, he mentors, and conducts research on abiotic stress responses, cell cycle, and plant rhizophyre interactions. Adan has won many, many awards including faculty appreciation awards. He has trained, get this, 113 undergraduates. He has participated in a range of service positions in ASPB, in NASC, that's the North American Arabidopsis Steering Committee, and to SACNAS. And most notably, he was recently elected to the board of directors of SACNAS. Welcome to the Taproot Adam. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to participate. Uh, Well, it is our pleasure. So uh, today's paper is The Influence of Arabidopsis thaliana Accessions on Rhizobacterial Communities and Natural Variation in Root Exudates by McAuliffe et al. in the Journal of Experimental Botany. Adan, would you give us a short summary of the paper, please? Sure. So Shirley McAuliffe, a graduate student at the time, when she joined my lab, she was interested in the rhizosphere and, and certainly bacteria that were living in the rhizosphere. And we didn't know at the time whether plants from a single species had diverse microbiomes, nor did we know whether slight genetic variations was enough to produce differences in bacterial populations that lived in the rhizosphere of plants. So we hypothesized that there were differences and that diversity matters and that plants and potentially what they exude is responsible for that diversity. So uh, what we did was that we took eight different natural accessions of Arabidopsis and using the same starting inoculum, and what we did is that we used soil from Waltham, Massachusetts, a, a neighboring town here. We grew plants in mixture of sterile potting soil and Waltham soil. And we monitored the uh, rhizosphere bacterial population profiles over developmental time. And so what we found was that even though each accession started with the same bacterial uh, community that was from the Waltham soil, accessions produce unique rhizosphere bacterial communities over that developmental time. And additionally, what we found was that exudates from each of these accessions was different. 
And so we propose that that could be the reason for the differences in the bacterial communities that we found. Awesome. So I think one of the old, you know, one of the age-old questions uh, when I think about the plant rhizosphere is, is what the heck is the plant rhizosphere, and how do you actually make sure you're looking at the rhizosphere when you are sampling these things? What, so what do you, what, what, what did you guys call the rhizosphere, and how did you sort of separate that out from the root or the soil? Mm-hmm. So the rhizosphere is that environment immediately outside the uh, the root system. And so the way that we did the, the experiments is that after growing the plants in soil, we would pull them out, shake any loose soil from uh, the root system, and whatever was still attached to the roots, we collected that root sample and, and we profiled the bacteria that was in that root sample that was physically attached to the roots themselves. And the same for the, the metabolites? Uh, Correct. So uh, when we uh, did exudate analysis, uh, we actually did those in vitro. So we didn't. Oh, grow, okay. Okay. Yeah, we didn't grow them in soil and then sampled the, the exudates in soil. Rather, we grew the different accessions in vitro and, and then uh, gotcha. I gotcha. Isolated the exudates that way. Everything gets complicated really quickly once you start looking at these interactions in the soil. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So mm-hmm. as I was reading the paper, I was thinking I was kept picturing myself trying to pull you know, Arabidopsis roots out of the soil and just like rip, <laughs> having the aerial portion rip right off the roots every time. Yeah. No. Yeah. So you would grow them and then, uh, you know, you will have to pull them out of the, their pots and, but you can shake off the loose soil and there's still usually plenty of soil left over that's still attached uh, to, to roots that you can scrape off and, and analyze. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Can you help us, though, think about why different accessions, I mean, this is like teleology, but why would a different accessions of Arabidopsis want to have different, be associated with different types of microbiota? Like, yeah. they're all Arabidopsis. Like, who right. That's a great question. This is a really good question. And, and you know, frankly, we don't fully know the answer to that. Uh, but what we do think is, is that uh, plants have evolved in different environmental conditions. Say Landsberg, the Landsberg accession population uh, evolved in Germany, and we have CVI accession from the Cape Verde Islands. And they have enough genetic diversity or differences between them that allows them to recruit a specific uh, bacterial community that might be beneficial to that one Rhabdopsis accession. And a specific microbial community might assist then the plant to fight off, uh, let's say, pathogens that are within the root system or even in leaf tissue, for example. Similarly, maybe a specific rhizosphere community might assist a plant in, let's say, tolerating stressful abiotic conditions by modifying the plant's physiology. In my lab, for instance, we study and we're interested in studying the interaction between plants, bacteria that are in the rhizosphere, and in environments that are polluted by petroleum. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because what you did was to sample how the different accessions can recruit bacteria in the soil in Massachusetts. 
but presumably the you know CVI plants didn't evolve to recruit plants from soil in Massachusetts. They evolved to recruit bacteria that were a part of a completely different ecosystem and a completely different soil. So presumably it's possible that the Cape Verde Island Arabidopsis aren't even exposed to the same bacterial species during evolution. They weren't even exposed to the same species that Landsberg were. And so then when they're, when they're given a range of bacteria to choose from, they actually only have the ability to recruit certain sets of bacteria. Does that, does that seem like a reasonable theory too? Yes, yes. Uh, and yet at the same time, th- there's differences in what CVI and Landsberg are able to recruit, right? So, and we could identify what those differences are. Yeah, I, I guess I, we're saying the same thing, which is that there are there's potentially differences in the plant's ability to recruit, but that may have been also affected by what bacteria were even there to be recruited. Correct. It's a small point. Yeah. But I, I thought it was really interesting to think about, I always think about these accessions as being you know, minimally different, but the differences you saw in rhizosphere was really big between accessions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, um, there's differences not only in the communities that we saw, but there's also differences in the exudate profiles that we saw from the different accessions. And um, that was uh, something that we hypothesized, but we didn't know that that would be true. And those exudates, that, was that small molecules you were looking at or proteins? So we, we uh, initially we sampled everything, and, and we weren't necessarily identifying specific chemicals per se. We were doing just HPLC analyses and looking at the whole profile and using the profiles as uh, our ability to detect those differences. However, that work has continued, and we have focused our attention on trying to identify the genes that are responsible for developing the different communities, characterizing those exudate differences between the genotypes, focusing our attention also on uh, also determining some secondary metabolism biosynthetic pathways that might change the exudate profiles, and also on whether these metabolic and biochemical changes can alter the rhizosphere microbiome, particularly during an abiotic stress response. Uh, But in terms of the the differences in exudate composition, what we did find was that there were phenolic differences, there were amino acid differences, specifically glutamic and tryptophan were, were different between different genotypes. Sugars, there were differences in the sugar composition. And we have focused our attention uh, specifically on glucosinolates. Uh, We find that uh, altering the glucosinolate pathway can produce differences in microbial communities as well. That's fascinating. I was thinking too about, I know you focused on the chemical pathways that lead to differences in exudates, but I was thinking about other ways that different accessions might attract different communities. Is that, am I using the right words to say, like attract a community? <laughs> attract um, a- you know, it, I guess attract is a strong word, but um, yeah. you, you're selecting different communities over time. Right. right? 
I had been thinking if different accessions have different root structures, like different density of lateral roots or like the root hair length is different or they're thicker or whatever, they could lead to different like soil er levels of soil aeration or pH changes in the soil or mm -hmm. so there could yeah. be all these other differences that are not exudates exactly. You're totally right. You're totally correct on this. You know, the, uh, even the eight X, the eight X sessions that we use, they have different root architecture. Mm -hmm. And you could also think about acidification in soils comes to mind as potential other factors that might impact and would be important in let's say, developing a particular community that lives in the rhizosphere. Uh, our lab did not specifically test those factors per se. We focused primarily on understanding exudate composition, primarily because we wanted to sort of identify the genes that might be responsible for driving some of those changes. Okay. Adan, I, I love that you've been understanding the intersection between the diversity of Arabidopsis and the diversity of the bacteria that they interact with in the rhizosphere. And I couldn't help but notice that your research on this topic has a really beautiful parallel in the work you do on diversity and in your own personal background. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your, your training, your background, and how that sort of led you to focus on diversity training and improving STEM diversity? Sure. So I'm an immigrant. Family immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico when I was uh, five years old. I grew up speaking Spanish at home and learned English in school. I am the first in my family to attend college. Um, I was the first to graduate from college and then obtain an advanced degree. And in many ways, uh, because no one in my family was a scientist or gotten a college degree. I had to navigate the scientific culture, you know, that I was growing up in as a college student. And, and I relied on a collection of diverse mentors, those that were scientists and who I was interacting with. Uh, I was welcomed into scientific societies, such as the Society for the Investment of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, or SACNAS, and ASPB. Uh, and those mentors really served as my social networks. Also, as an undergrad, uh, I participated in research training program that was funded by NIH, but it was instrumental in sort of shaping my identity as a scientist. And just as important, I was fortunate uh, to meet scientists of color through SACNAS. And those individuals that I met through SACNAS became my future colleagues and mentors. Individuals such as Maria Elena Savala uh, from Cal mm -hmm. State yeah. Northridge and David Bridges from Boston College. Uh, these personal experiences are really motivating factors for me in choosing to work at a place that has a diverse student body, UMass Boston. And really, it, it uh, has allowed me to be active in promoting diversity in STEM fields. Uh, and to me, this is uh, just as important in the science that I do, this other work that relates to diversity in STEM. Well, one thing that I know you care about a lot 
is the concept of multiculturalism. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, I am an immigrant to the U.S. And when I was very young and growing up here, first in California, now living in Massachusetts, in many ways, my life includes at least two different cultures, right? The Mexican culture, the American culture, and really the blending of these two cultures, such as my Chicano identity. And then there's the scientific culture in which I work in. And these multiple cultures that an individual grows up in, and, and one may argue, it, and an individual sort of grows up and develops these multiple identities. And as a result, I do consider myself an individual with uh, multiple cultures. In other words, my identity is made up by at least two or more of these cultures, the so-called multiculturalism. Right. I think we have a tendency to use a deficit model where we think of people coming into scientific culture from a, a different culture, right? But I wonder if in some ways those haven't also turned out to be, your multiple identities haven't ended up being assets to you. Mm-hmm. Excellent observation. I think it has, absolutely. At a place like UMass Boston, for example, where approximately 60% of the students are students of color, 60% uh, are first in their families to go to college. They are Pell Grant eligible. Many of them speak more than one language. My multiculturalism is an asset. It has allowed me to easily relate to the experiences of my students. And certainly during COVID times, uh, where you amplify the injustices in society, right? I'm able to empathize with uh, the experiences that my students bring to the classroom. These students then are not only uh, the students I interact with, um, are not only having to adapt and persist in sort of the universe, uh, university environment and uh, this academic culture, but also if I'm teaching science courses, the STEM fields, the STEM culture. And so in many ways, they're having to do many of the thing- same things I have to do as a student, and I'm able to relate and interact with them in a uh, sort of environment that is very familiar to me. We actually are this season asking everybody how they've handled COVID. So in spring, we, we were, uh, you know, we had COVID and, and uh, we all had to teach remotely after starting in person. And uh, on my campus, as I mentioned, is, is very diverse and many of our students Uh, mostly a commuter campus. And for our students, uh, many of them are living at home. And so having to go remote meant that students had to adjust to this remote environment and at the same time trying to get an education. And they had to deal with many challenges, many challenges that are not very different from what I had to grow up with. I have six siblings. Uh, so there's a very large family that I grew up in. And I would understand, for instance, that you know, if a student is having to try to take classes from home and there are siblings in the, in, at home and there's additional responsibilities uh, uh, from 
parents and other family members that they that their lives have gotten very complicated. Right. And so during COVID, you know, I think that we really had to step back and understand our students better. And I, I think that I spent a lot of time on Zoom with individual conversations with students to try to better understand what they were experiencing so that I could modify my teaching in ways that would accommodate this new reality. I think that having my own personal experience and bringing that to the classroom allowed me to sort of ask those questions to those individuals and figure out how I could best assist in their learning, which I think was helpful. So, so that was for your students in terms of your classes. Have you opened your lab back up? Yes and no. I mean, we were only recently allowed to go back in. And so at the moment, uh, only the graduate students uh, have come back in. And it's been difficult uh, because we do have to go in in shifts. Undergraduates are still not back uh, into the lab. I do have one student who's a, who has personal issues that prevent him from being back in the lab. And so this makes it challenging for him completing some of the work that he needs to do. So it has definitely been hard. Absolutely. I have a new project that is based in Puerto Rico. We were supposed to start in July. We haven't really been able to start it because it's based in Puerto Rico and we can't travel there. But it just made it really difficult. Yeah, I was thinking about this, what you were discussing about as a teacher, and I'm sure it's exactly the same as being a research mentor, right? Being able to see that there are <laughs> to see the complexities of each student's experience. And I think it's something that many of us on the privilege, higher up on the privilege spectrum, <laughs> I, I mean, I knew it theoretically, but there was something about the COVID response. My school spent a, a lot of emails and a lot of time really letting professors know this is the time you need to give your students grace. You need to be aware that they, not everybody has high-speed internet access. They're, you don't know mm -hmm. what's going on behind the scenes. You just don't know what they're dealing with. And mm -hmm. I feel like that was a great, it was a great educational experience for me, but it's, that, that's not new. It's not like those students <laughs> didn't have those problems before. It's mm -hmm. just COVID magnified it. and. Exactly. I think what we, we should be reminded of, too, is, is you know, the, the potential for taking advantage of the multiculturalism that exists in individuals, you know, and, and use it as a strength and as an advantage. And what I mean by this is that, you know, someone who is a multicultural individual, and what they bring to the table are sort of these soft skills, you know, what the person is able to adapt and persist in these hostile, difficult, challenging environments. Abiotic and, stress. Yeah, like a, 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 abiotic stress, exactly, <laughs> or biotic stress. And, and so we're constantly perceiving these societal challenges, these microaggressions in, in the places that we work and study. And we respond to those. And we, in responding to those, I'm thinking about, for instance, my own experience here too, is that you know, we utilize some of these social networks that we've developed over time. In my case, I, I utilize the diverse network of mentors that I've developed 
in my own career, in my life, to help me persist in STEM or whatever fields or careers that we choose to move into for our lives. And that's true. At the same time, one may argue that if conditions are too toxic, uh, a multicultural individual will likely adapt and move into a new area of study or work. And what I'm talking about here, you know, think about maybe this, this, the talented undergraduate student of color, let's say, who changed their major or to something else, something else that was not STEM. Right. What were they doing? I mean, what they were doing was that they were adapting and persisting in, in an environment that maybe was not as toxic. Right. And certainly you know, preliminary studies that my colleague, uh, Rosalind, and I have done here at UMass Boston for the last eight years uh, has indicated that both of these types of scenarios are at place when we're thinking about diversity in STEM. So by both scenarios, you mean the scenario where they are able to persist and the one where they go somewhere else in order Correct. to persist. Yeah. Correct. Right. That's right. Yeah. But the difference there is whether uh, an individual who is multicultural has an enriched environment in that there are interventions in place that allow those individuals to potentially persist. So, you know, professor who takes the time to individually mentor that student, to provide that flexibility in how they learn, or to, you know, to be flexible with their time in, in making sure that that student learns. And sometimes, you know, within STEMs, our structures are so rigid. We're, we teach large classes and, and we don't take the time to, to do that, to really think about sort of the diversity of the learners that we have in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds, to, this. I think this is a, this, I'm reducing what you're saying, but it sounds to me like a huge, one of the huge benefits of your background is empathy. I think that's right. You know, I, as a white man, I think, oh, I have empathy, but maybe I don't have all of the antenna to sense where, is, where, where it's needed mm. as, as easily. You know, I, Ivan, I, I agree. And, but I, what I'm also thinking about is, you know, the, the mentors I had in my life. My, my PhD mentor was a white male mm. from the Midwest. And, but I think that he, 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 he did have empathy and he did understand what it means to be a good mentor and he had the skills. Yeah, and I, and I think that's totally true. But we also, I think it's also easier, it's, it's not a panacea, but I think it's easier to be empathetic with your grad students who you develop a long-term relationship with than it is for an undergrad who spends a few months in the lab or an undergrad in your class or you know, an undergrad that you happen to meet at a meeting. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's part, probably where some of those antenna come up is that, you know, mm. you may, you know, it's all these micro interactions that we may not have, have a sense for. Yes. And, and when you were saying that, I was reminded of this one example from a class, not this past semester, but a previous semester at this one student who was coming into class. He, he clearly was bright. He interacted with me out of class. And 
you know, he would come into class. It's a 9.30 a.m. class. And sure enough, he would always be falling asleep. And I didn't get it. You know, I thought I was, you know, an interactive person in class, but why is this person? And, you know, I, I had, I sensed that something was not right. Here I see a very intelligent person. There's something else. And so I pulled him off, you know, after one of the classes and I asked, Fernando, what's going on? You know, I noticed that this was happening. I learned that he, he works nights. He worked all night. He comes to class. He's a full-time student, and he's working all night, and then comes to school. He was dead tired. Yeah. He was dead tired. But, you know, understanding that individuals have complex life, certainly students in, on my campus, I can't assume that he just goes back to his dorm because that doesn't exist. Right. So I had to really think about, okay, what is it about his life that is making this happen? Right. And so my radar, um, Ivan, is that I'm, I'm very alert to those complexities of, of lives. And I ask, I ask students what's going on. So if you were to give a student advice, a student who says, this is who I am. Don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like the right fit. I feel like I'm being squeezed. Like what advice would you give them? The, the kind of advice that I give a student who is sort of between these different pressures and, and I guess challenges in their lives is really comes down to asking them to think about what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. A lot of times students whether they're non-traditional students or more traditional students, you know, an 18-year-old, it comes down to, you know, are they doing whatever they're doing in terms of their studies for themselves or because of pressures from family or culture or whatever. And, right. and if I focus their attention on that, on what makes them happy, yeah. I think that we sort of move in the direction of trying to identify what things they like, what they don't like. And at that point, being able to identify strategies that they can take moving forward. But I, I, starting with what makes you happy always works in my, in my experience with students who are you know, being pulled in all these different directions. Right. Yeah, that's really that's like great advice all, all the way through the career ladder. Yeah question of you know what makes you happy once you know all the possibilities is is a really good way of thinking about it because i think obviously what makes you happy if you don't know that grad school is an option is a is a very different hmm. uh for somebody someone to think through but one of the things i wanted to to ask you is about i think this idea of the multicultural approach is great and I think it's it's something we should really strive towards. But one of the things that I struggle with is trying to you know make sure that we're moving in the right direction. And if you define you know say we want our society, our program, our faculty to be more more multicultural, does that make it harder to quantify whether we're actually making progress? Uh, because you can, it's a lot easier to try and 
say we want to have good gender balance or or we want to have specifically more Chicano or more black scientists and say, can we measure that? But but in, in reality, we really do want this sort of more multicultural approach, but that's it's it can be much harder to quantify. And I think about this intersectionality, like we don't want to solve the the problem of not having enough black faculty by hiring all black men, right? <laughs> that's that's not what we want to do. We want to we want to have we want our departments and our programs and our uh, societies to reflect the nation at large, um, our, our you know our 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 whole society. So how do we how do we sort of balance those? That's um, it's tough, and it takes a lot of work, and certainly it takes a long time. It's not something that's going to come over overnight, and just you know if we think about. Black Lives Matter and uh, what's going on uh, outside currently, it's not new. It's something that has been happening over decades, hundreds of years. And uh, changing a system, an unjust system, is, is really tough. And I think that we can start locally, <laughs> if I may <laughs> uh, borrow that. And, you know, make an environment, create an environment that is welcoming, um, where you, you think about your priorities. And if having a, an environment and a, and a place that is welcoming to people from different cultures or multicultural person, I think that's, that's a start. But certainly it takes initiatives. It takes the creation of potentially new systems of hiring people, of evaluating people. I mentioned the fact that a multicultural individual earlier uh, who is in a toxic environment is not going to want to stay. They're going to adapt. They're going to move. Uh, and similarly, you know, for the places that you have, it's not a welcoming place. People leave. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you're a talented scientist of color, you're going to go somewhere else. So you have to change the way that you do things so that uh, people are welcome. And it does take a long time. You know, some of these uh, training programs that focus on underrepresented groups, uh, they've been around for a long time, but the needle hasn't been moved very much in terms of diversifying the faculty, right? Or even the scientific workforce. It, it's, it's been taking a long time. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's the, the right direction. Mm-hmm. So you, do I hear you saying that these sort of traditional programs, like the one you were, you were in, you said from NIH when you were a trainee, you think those work well? Or do you think there are some sort of ways we need to revolutionize the way we are? Because I've always felt like in some ways those programs are designed to, I don't know, like make everybody the same. It's like that deficit model idea, like people who are coming into science from these diverse backgrounds, we need to help them be more like the average white scientist. And maybe that's good, but it also seems like it's reducing the, I don't know, like we're losing a resource there or something by asking people to change who they are in order to be accepted or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm going too far with it. 
you probably have a better idea than I do. I think that you're bringing up multiple issues uh, in, in, so. in, in bringing that up because I think that certainly those programs have now been evaluated and been studied and then researched. And it's clear that having an experience like that where you are in a research environment early on and you're exposed to uh, research careers and what it takes and so forth has an impact on their ability to stay within your major, graduate and, and pursue mm-hmm. a, a career in science. Uh, that's clear. Those programs help okay. based on you know, the success of many decades, those individuals. Now, that doesn't mean that you've changed the system outside of those programs, right? Because if you're going to be a professor nowadays, you know, you're having to deal with all these other things, being a postdoc, competing for jobs, being in the faculty of of the department that's not very welcoming welcoming or whatever. It's not as simple as we're going to have this program and this is going to change everything else. It's a I think it's more complex than that. Similarly, I think that the way that those programs started is very different than uh, how some of these programs currently are. Uh-huh. I think that programs nowadays are more holistic. They are thinking about mentorship. They are thinking about these other aspects of, of being a scientist, so, so, such as this, the social issues that impact a scientist such as imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and microaggressions and other things that are not you know, part of your scientific training that are important in you succeeding mm-hmm. as a scientist. And so training programs nowadays are more holistic in that way in that they don't not only put you in a lab to have right. you do your science, but they also allow you to develop these other aspects of your identity that are important for you to succeed in right. science. Yeah, I think peer mentoring is really helpful in those, in that regard. And that's sort of what you were talking about with your networking too. Yes, exactly. Adon, this has been fantastic. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today. So how can uh, people get in touch with you if they want to ask you a question or uh, learn more? I'd love to hear from people if they have additional questions. You're welcome to contact me at my email. Uh, that's A-D-A-N dot C-O-L-O-N hyphen C-A-R-M-O-N-A. That's Adan Colon Carmona at U-M-B dot E-D-U. That's my email. Or you can use Twitter at A Colon Carmona, one word. And I would love to hear from you if you have additional questions. Fantastic. And Liz, how can people get in touch with you? You can contact me on Twitter at at eHaswell. And you can uh, get a hold of me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can uh, contact the podcast at Taproot Podcast on Twitter. And we also have an uh, email address, which is uh, taproot at plantae.org. And with that, Adon, thank you again for just a, a really great conversation. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Adon.
Taproot is produced by the hosts in collaboration with the Plant A team of Katie Rogers and Mary Williams at the American Society of Plant Biologists. On this episode, we received editing help from Plant A fellow Anunya Mukherjee. Joe Stormer provides our transcripts. Thanks for listening, and we will return with another episode next week. Thank you.